This is Steve Downs, the voice of Master Chief Sierra 117, with a shout out to the Xbox Expansion Pass. Keep your heads up during this time of isolation. Stay positive. Play some games. Most importantly, finish the fight. Thanks for listening to XEP. Master Chief, out. Welcome one, welcome all to episode 113 of the Xbox Expansion Pass, recorded on Monday, December 20th, 2021. I am your host, Luke Lore, the Insipid Ghost. In this episode, we welcome senior game designer at WB Montreal, Osama Dorius, on to discuss his work in the gaming industry, ranging from indie development, Muslim representation in games, all the way through now to his work on Gotham Knights. Prior to that, we'll look back on the week's news, including news that Splinter Cell is getting a full remake and the gaming industry is seeing increasing encroachment by NFTs. Enjoy. Yet another week of gaming is upon us and behind us. Welcome to XEP, discussing all things in the Gamerverse as they pertain to the Xbox ecosystem. And as I want to do each and every week, I like to start the show by offering words of kindness to those who have made my gaming week better. And this week, the words of kindness go to my friend Aaron, the agent of doom over on Twitch and Twitter. Aaron is consistently a positive and bright voice in the gaming industry. He came across my timeline this past week, uh, and it reminded me just how cool it is to meet and experience amazing people in the gaming industry. Aaron works uh, on the Sony side of things, and so I don't interact with him in a PR or gaming type space, uh, but he's just constantly streaming good vibes, saying good things over on the Twitter ver- Twitterverse, uh, and it's just cool to meet good people, even if they don't necessarily interact with the content that you create. And so, uh, Aaron, you are the man, the agent of doom over on Twitter uh, and on Twitch. Guys, give him a shout. He is a good person for sure. Uh, Quick housekeeping here, guys, if you are enjoying XEP or have enjoyed it, if it's gotten you through a rough week, rough day here in 2021, please be so kind to go and rate us over on iTunes. It is now possible to rate over on Spotify as well, or drop a like over on the YouTube page. It is those things that make podcasts go around. Uh, I do have a winner for the three months of Game Pass Ultimate here on the YouTube channel. I want to give a shout out to uh, the amazing Adam Hakes. Uh, Adam, if you just DM me or email me, I will send you a three-month code to uh, Xbox Game Pass Ultimate. Thank you so much for commenting on the last episode. I appreciate you enjoying uh, XEP as well. Guys, let's get to some news. Making headlines this past week, Ubisoft has announced that Splinter Cell is getting a full remake and it is back. The beloved stealth action series is back with a new project that is going to be headed up by Ubisoft Toronto. This is the same team that worked on Splinter Cell Blacklist and more recently Far Cry 6. Uh, We are understanding that this game is a full remake and not a remaster, but that it's looking to build on previous titles Uh, iterations from the the series and it's going to be using the division's snowdrop engine 
which I actually rather like. I really enjoyed the Division Snow, Snowdrop engine in what I played with it. They're going to be looking to recreate a lot of the kind of climactic moments that Splinter Cell has brought about while still updating the gameplay uh, philosophies that it has uh, been known for. You know, so trying to adapt that old school stealth action gameplay and bring it into a modern era with a lot of different things that the industry has learned for the better uh, since you know it, it's come to pass. And you have to imagine that the Snowdrop engine is going to do a very good job with things like light and shadow mechanics for stealth action. Uh, Sam Fisher, very well known for using uh, shadow effects, for hiding in, in different places in order to get the drop on various enemies. I'm excited for this news. I think, I think a lot of people get very excited when they see those three green lights and they hear Splinter Cell and it's become something of a mythological announcement uh, of late. While every announcement showcase or, or, or spotlight event, people are thinking, is this the one where Splinter Cell comes back? It certainly seemed to come in a very odd way. It didn't get a big E3 announcement. It wasn't a game awards, big announcement, like big thing and spectacle it was pretty much just put out there that Splinter Cell is coming back and they're going to be working on it. That that really was all it was. It felt very anticlimactic for an announcement that has been so desperate to come to pass. And I have a theory on why that is. But first, let me read you some quotes from producer Matt West, uh, who's explaining why this game is going to be a remake rather than a remaster. Uh, Matt West says, quote, to me, a remake takes what you do in a remaster and goes a little bit further with it. The original Splinter Cell has a lot that was amazing and revolutionary at the time that it came out 19 years ago. The gaming public now has even more refined palette. So I think the kind of has to be a remake as opposed to a remaster. Although we're still in the very earliest stages of development, what we're trying to do is to make sure that the spirit of the early games remains intact and all of the ways that they gave the early Splinter Cell its identity, end quote. Now, this tells me several things. First of all, this is nowhere far in development. It's very early stages, as he said, but for the way they announced for the way they announced it, and in the timing of its announcement to come on the back of uh, the arrival of NFTs into Ghost Recon Breakpoint and Ubisoft's continued controversy uh, in HR and how they treat their employees and their mismanagement for how they're handling a lot of the issues that are being arised in a toxic work culture. It felt very much to me that they are they knew they needed to get some good news and good vibes out there to distract from a lot of the downtrodden news events that have come out about Ubisoft overall. And so they're putting it out there. They are working on Splinter Cell. They know it's a beloved franchise. They know people want it. And they're trying to figure out a direction for it. My expectation is you don't even see this game till 2024. And you can probably expect it in 2025. I have very mixed thoughts on this, to be sure. Splinter Cell, a beloved franchise, a lot of people excited for it. I absolutely love Splinter Cell Blacklist and Conviction. I know a lot of people go back even further. However, I'll, I'll tell you right now, I never played the older Splinter Cell games uh, beyond Conviction and Blacklist, or if I did, I certainly don't remember it. That said, I know a lot of people want this. My question is, just what Ubisoft are we going to get? Are we going to get the Ubisoft uh, philosophies and mentalities that brought us some of the incredible Assassin's Creed games like black flag like odyssey like origins or are we going to get some of this kind of fudged up weird thing that's going on with ghost recon breakpoint where they're dropping nfts in there where they're exploiting different elements of their communities are we going to get the ubisoft that is trying to put out mobile games left and right that's trying to make things like x defiant and capitalize on trends that they don't need to capitalize on ubisoft at one point was a trend setter 
they did something splasher, special, splasher. <laughs> they did something special with Rainbow Six, and now it seems like they're tracing trends with Rainbow Six Extraction. I really don't know how to feel about the return of Sam Fisher and Splinter Cell. I'm excited for the possibilities. I'm so worried and cautious for just what their approach is going to be. I mentioned NFTs, and I really feel like NFTs are a reality that the gaming industry is going to have to combat, and Ubisoft is one of the first major AAA companies that is announcing it's putting NFTs into its gaming process, uh, its gaming world. And how that's going to impact the gaming industry remains to be seen. I have so many questions about it. A lot of people don't even understand what NFTs are. If you're unfamiliar or if you needed to do a quick Google Google uh, lookup, NFTs are non-fungible tokens. They're unique digital goods that can be bought or sold with ownership that is tracked in blockchain. That is a lot of jargon. Essentially, it means the purchase and ownership of a digital construct, a digital right, a picture, a 3D object or whatnot. They are, ex- they are becoming increasingly popular as a way to add value to digital goods. And it seems like that's what Ubisoft is trying to do with with NFTs in their game, which they're calling digits. I don't know why we're getting their own version. Ubisoft has to do what it's got to do. NFTs in in Ubisoft platforms, which they have a platform called Ubisoft Quartz. This is all getting very complex, by the way. It is hard to track. And as I kind of compiled news elements, even I was getting a bit befuddled while having it in front of me. So if you're hearing my voice and you're like, all right, Luke, I don't quite know what you're saying here. The long and the short of it is Ubisoft is getting non-fungible tokens where people can buy and sell digital goods within their games, starting with Ghost Recon Breakpoint. In their games, they're calling it Digits, and they announced it on a platform called Quartz. Ugh, it's gross. It's gross. It feels gross. It looks gross. Uh, their, their NFTs, their Digits, as they're calling them, are only going to be cosmetic at this time particular uh, and specific to Ghost Recon Breakpoint, which is a very strange platform to try this on. I re-downloaded Breakpoint recently with the arrival of a single-player campaign. I was anxious to try it out, uh, and I'm now going to be deleting it. I'm not a fan of the NFT encroachment into the gaming industry. I do not like the idea of them arriving into the gaming industry. Uh, it, It just, it feels so strange. It feels so uncomfortable. I think back to microtransactions and their arrival into the gaming world and at first they were done very poorly and we've seen a lot of examples of them done right of them done wrong and still companies don't quite have a handle on it and there's a lot of wiggle room in that right i'm thinking about halo infinite at the moment microtransactions in halo infinite are not good i do not appreciate or support them uh in in the in the price points they're at and what they offer but there's continued listening and continued uh, changes happening within Halo Infinite at such a rapid rate, it looks like they want to do right by their consumer base. Awesome. Great. Love that. Digital goods in other places, microtransactions in other places are very predatory. Uh, other places, think of, thinking about Fortnite at the moment, thinking about Avengers at the moment, you're paying a lot of money for skins and whatnot, and consumers are responding by purchasing them, meaning that it's working for that community. How NFTs and non-fungible tokens play into this, I'm just not sure. Is it you design some some digital good within, uh, like a, let's think about a livery in Forza Horizon 5. Say that they were using NFTs. If you purchased a livery that was custom and unique to Forza Horizon 5, would that stick only to your car and nobody else could use it? Is that worth it? You buy it from a famous creator or a famous artist and you buy this NFT off this artist and now it's yours? 
that just seems so strange in a world where things in digital space are, are easily reproduced. I have more questions than answers. I, I feel like I'm babbling, though I'm not trying to. It just seems so jargon heavy, so silly, while we have an industry that is young and trying to adapt to this. Now, at the time I'm recording this, uh, I'm about an hour or so removed from when I will talk to Osama Dorius about this, and he has extensive experience in the gaming industry. Perhaps he has more insight into NFTs. I'm certainly going to be asking him about that. Uh, but as a consumer, as a gamer, how do you guys feel about it? What are your thoughts on how NFTs might kind of encroach into the gaming world? Uh, do you see them as simple microtransactions and, and the possibility for them to be very good? As we've seen microtransactions do, they've, they've allowed many games free to play lit, to live in ways that maybe they wouldn't have. Do you see them to be very predatory? Tell me your your inhibitions, your uh, your worries, your trepidations about NFTs, please. Uh, drop it in the comments over on YouTube or respond to me on Twitter or email me insipidghost at gmail.com. Tell me what I don't know because there could be something that I'm unaware of. Also in that NFT space, we had news from Stalker 2. Now, Stalker 2 set to be a big day and date arrival into Game Pass for Xbox. Stalker 2, a lot of fanfare around it. It was announced some uh, months back. People are really excited about this one. It looks to be a deeper, darker, more enhanced version of Metro in, in a lot of ways. Uh, it announced and canceled NFTs in its game in the same week. It announced earlier last week that it would be teaming up with an NFT trading platform called DMarket to use blockchain technology and let the community own a piece of Stalker 2 content. All right. So like basically you create this thing in Stalker 2. It's yours. You, you exist within the Stalker 2 metaverse and it's yours. And you would have been able to, to register for this and really get going for when the game comes out in, in April 2022. There was so much fan backlash and there was so much hostility about the arrival to nfts that they announced just several days after uh putting it out there that they would have nfts in their game like it was something like three days later they were like you know what we are not going to be doing that they tweeted out saying something to the effect of you know if you don't want it we don't want it it said uh quote dear stalkers we hear you based on the feedback we received we made the decision to cancel anything nft related in stalker 2 the interests of our fans and players are the top priority for the team. We're making this game for you to enjoy whatever the cost is. If you care, we care too, end quote. That's good. I love that they're hearing fans. Stalker 2 is a game that everybody seems to be very excited for. And I'm not sure if it's just one of those internet things where everyone acts like they care, but then when the game comes out, they don't. I'm unsure about that one. But I like the idea that they... they responded to fan feedback the way they did this is another big triple a game uh and i'm thinking about halo infinite where they're seeing feedback and reacting very quickly to it love that wish ubisoft could get on board with that and say you know what maybe we are going to treat our our employees properly maybe we are going to get rid of these things that people don't want um though to their credit to their credit they did cancel that free-to-play shooter that they were making not the counter-strike competition one there was another one can't keep up. Ubisoft is a really mixed bag, man. They were on the good track for a little while, weren't they? They really seemed to, after they uh, fought off that that purchase by the other French company, they were doing real well. And man, they've, yikes, 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 yikes. NFTs, Stalker 2, Splinter Cell, uh, that's a lot. Yeesh. Yeesh. 
Stepping away from NFTs and some of the negative news of the past week, we got news that Tim Schafer's Double Fine is working on multiple projects. Now, this is not necessarily a surprise. We know that almost every one of the Xbox Game Studios, 23 or so uh, companies, studios within them, have multiple teams working on multiple projects, which makes sense when you need to fill out a subscription service. However, in an update to a crowdfunding platform, Fig, the team revealed that the, that the group that worked on Psychonauts 2 is now moving on to other projects. Uh, said, quote, the studio is already splitting up into various teams and starting different projects that we think you'll enjoy. We like experimentation here at Double Fine. Every game is a chance to explore new ideas, new visual styles or gameplay, emotions and more. End quote. Love that. I think it's great. A lot of people responded very heavily uh, to with positive praise i should say to double finds psychonauts 2 unfortunately didn't take home any game of the year awards despite being nominated in five different categories over at the game awards i know my friends at season gaming are really high on this game uh it fell a little bit flat for me i just couldn't get past all the quirky dialogue a little too much tim burton for my particular tastes but it was very clear that this game is fantastic right and Double Fine continues to make unique, fun experiences, and their popularity popularity is only rising. And uh, I think that's good. That's good for Xbox. That's good for the team. And when you have someone like Tim Schafer who wants to make things that are completely surprising, unique, and special, I think it's good for culture, right? It's good for the culture within the gaming community, within Xbox Game Studios, within Double Fine. You have multiple projects. You're not bogged down by one particular franchise thinking about news out of the coalition they're working on other things that are not just gears that's great that company probably needs a little bit of of breathing room there and if this is the model that double fine is taking it lends credence and credibility to the idea that other companies uh within xbox game studios might be doing the same we know they've all got multiple teams but if they're allowed the freedom and the finances to be creative and work on lots of different projects simultaneously uh, in order to fuel their creativity I think that's a great thing, and it's a fantastic thing. Uh, I do want to read one more quote from Tim Schafer here that I think is is heartwarming and, and worthwhile. He says, quote, There was a period at the end of Psychonauts 2 where we had all hands on deck to finish the game, but we're definitely going back to multiple projects afterwards until this ha- until it happens again. Who knows? We don't have any rules about that, and we, but we're set up to have multiple projects, and we have enough ideas to do that, end quote. That's a feel-good vibe right there. You know, like, hey, when it's time to get the job done on a main platform, we're going to get it done. Otherwise, go create. And that's exactly what I want. Go create, make more games. Uh, Jam Pack Sam wrote in, by the way, Jam Pack Sam hosts a, or rather I should say, an Xbox podcast called Exhibition, an Xbox podcast. You guys should look that one up. He has the perfect radio voice. It's really cool. He says, uh, would you love, would love to hear your thoughts on where Tim Schafer and the Double Fine team should go next. Sam, I do not want to avoid your question, but frankly, I have no idea where they should go next because they have a style that I'm not overly fond of. I don't have a ton of experience in just what Psychonauts 2 was or is. More to the point, Double Fine games rarely appeal to me. I do see their value in the gaming industry, the power that they have in the gaming industry, and the reactions that so many other gamers have to their creativity. My hope is that they do just what they said, just the sentiment that they've expressed, that they can go create whatever it is they want, make it and make it well. And I hope it brings great games to Game Pass and to gamers. That's exactly what I want. Quirky, fun, creative, touching on mental health as Psychonauts 2 did. I think that's awesome. That's what I want to see happen. Uh, But beyond that, I don't really have specifics. I mean, everybody talked about them 
creating Banjo. They've said they didn't want to make Banjo. All right, cool. Rock on. Do whatever you guys want. Make great platformers. Uh, and if they appeal, I'm going to play them. So those are my thoughts there. A few other neat things coming out this past week. If you missed it, over on YouTube, Microsoft put out Power On. It's a document documentary series uh, on the history of Xbox over the last 20 years. It pulls no punches. I think the, the general consensus from many different creators, podcasters, and myself included, is that they could have just made a bit of PR speak on this one to try and sell Xbox to people. And instead, they really took a, a, a hard look at what they did well, what they didn't do well. And over the course of six episodes across this documentary, they really spotlighted the best moments from Xbox history and some of the worst Xbox moments from history from moments from Xbox history. Goodness, I can't speak today, guys. This is embarrassing. Oh, I got to get it together. Uh, it was wild to watch at just how close Xbox came to not being anything at all to to flopping multiple times to see their meteoric rise in the Xbox 360 era after a billion dollar mistake with their three red lights to see them absolutely get owned owned in the Xbox one generation they even showed specifically the clip of Shuhei Yoshida passing the game to Adam boys uh, in that full-on Sony dunk for Xbox during the, that era it was great to see them kind of taking ownership for their mistakes. It was also fascinating to see uh, and listen to Don Matrick. Now that is a name that is akin to a cuss word in the Xbox gaming community. Memed on, joked on, I certainly have myself. I'm not a fan of Don Matrick at all. But it was interesting to see what he did that truly benefited Xbox, how instrumental he was in bringing uh, Xbox into a digital age where Netflix and Hulu and HBO would be on the platform there in getting digital goods out there, capitalizing on motion control gaming and technologies for Kinect. Now, Kinect has a lot of a lot of negativity around it. I didn't like Kinect uh, at all after the kind of the first iteration and the, the glitz and glam and the gimmick wore off. But that technology certainly played a big role in a lot of other elements, particularly in the medical field. The always on factor and how that really makes a lot of sense in 2021, but really didn't in 2013. There was a lot of forward thinking on the business side from Don Matrick that I think we have to give due credit to. I certainly don't like the way he approached gamers, the way he spoke to gamers. I don't I didn't like a lot of that stuff about it. But in watching the documentary, at the very least, we could see the benefits to his philosophies in the gaming industry. Right. That's not to say he's best or worst, dude. There's a lot of thoughts and jury out on that one. But in many ways, Xbox was ahead of its time. And that's a bad thing in some ways, right? Like Dreamcast. Think about Dreamcast. They had that, that internet port there. They had uh, they were running on an operating system, and it was not ready. The world wasn't ready to do what they wanted to do, and it flopped. Xbox One, the world wasn't ready to do what they wanted to do, and they flopped. And hearing them discuss their messaging problems with TV, 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 uh, getting memed on, and then reflecting back as to how their course correcting was really, really cool. And they didn't do a, a lot of what's the right word? Hey, look how great we are now. There wasn't a lot of that. They did discuss some things. They did showcase like, you know, here's what we're doing now to a small effort, but it wasn't about that. This was about the history of Xbox and it was honest and it was brutal in a lot of places. And so uh, it really, to me, kind of captured the mentality that I've seen Xbox PR do over the last two years. Take something that was memefied and working against them and make it work for them. Oh, our box looks like a fridge. We're going to sell you a fridge. 
oh, we the, the Series S is leaked. Let's make a meme on it and joke about it ourselves. Hey, we bombed out of a lot of moments in Xbox history with the three red lights, the Connect, and uh, always online. Let's talk about why. Making it work for them. And I think that's why their, their good vibes continue to arrive. So cheers to them for that. The gunk came out this past week, guys, and I have really been enjoying it. There's a lot of internet debate, actually, about this game, which has surprised me. I love and adore the gunk. I think it's a great video game. I'm having a lot of fun with this one. We had Ulf Hartelius on the last episode. If you didn't listen to that interview with the games designer, please go check that one out. He talks a lot about their philosophies in creating the gunk. Uh, having played it and beaten it, I absolutely love it. I'm seeing a lot of other people absolutely love it. I'm also seeing it fall flat for a lot of people. And I was surprised by that because what I was expecting was a brilliant and beautiful uh, 3D puzzle platformer. And that's exactly what I got from the gunk. And I think others may have been expecting something more or maybe something on the level of Kenna Bridge of Spirits. Uh, I'm not 100% sure where the misstep is, but in talking to several of my gaming community friends, uh, I'm seeing some of them just absolutely on board with me. They, they recognize how beautiful this game is, that the art and is just wonderful. Guys, I'm telling you, the screenshots and the moments and the music just tie so together, so well together that it's the perfect wind down to a super busy AAA season. There have been some high profile games, starting with Back for Blood all the way up until now, uh, that have been very intense in nature. Forza, Back for Blood, Chorus, Halo Infinite. These are big, intense games. Battlefield and Call of Duty can be thrown in there if that's your that's your taste. Um, it was really nice to play a much slower paced game, a more chill game in which you go around and you just clean the world and you discover things. You solve very simple puzzles. None of the puzzles in the game are difficult, um, but you get a sense of accomplishment as you go and you hear these two great characters kind of narrate and discuss the philosophies of should we be helping save this world or should we be taking care of our ship and ourselves because we're broken, broken down. It's very well acted. Uh, I, I really liked this game a lot. I was surprised that some people didn't, um, but I absolutely recommend this one to you guys. I, I enjoyed my time with it. I loved talking to all Fartelius and hearing the, the genuine vibe in his voice. Uh, that might've given me a bit of bias, but I encourage you to try it for yourself. It's on game pass and it's the perfect wind down to a busy AAA year and a year where we've had yet another year of, of stress and frustration and difficulty to go through a game that's beautiful and clean it up of, of, negativity as it were it's literally you know this clean this parasite up and, and help a world thrive it felt good i was relaxed while playing it i was chill while playing it uh, and it gave me good feels and i wish more games would do that and so after back for blood and halo and chorus and all these intense games i really love the gunk and i would recommend it to any of you try this one out play it this is one of several arrivals into game pass this past week that appeal to more chill mindsets, more childlike mindsets. They're Paw Patrol and several others are Ben 10 are dropping into Game Pass this week. It's a great move, by the way, from Microsoft to do that ahead of the holidays, get some kid games, kid family friendly games in there. This is a game that I think you could sit on the couch with and and have a, a loved one or a kiddo watch or watch your son or daughter play this one. It's just a feel good game. And I felt good playing it and I loved playing it. And I was grateful that Image and Form, who is known for the Steam World games, created a 3D platforming game. Uh, I had a lot of fun and I hope you guys will check it out.
All right, guys, let's get to listener mail. I had several people write in and ask about my experience at the Halo Championships in Raleigh. Uh, it was really cool. I, I did go to the Halo Championships to watch and to be a, a uh, viewer there. It was neat. Uh, to, we took the VIP tour where we got to see kind of how they go about creating this huge digital event that that garnered more, by the way, more people than any other Halo event in Halo's esports history watched the Halo Championships in Raleigh, and that was super cool to see. It was just blowing up on Twitch. Uh, really, really cool stuff there. Some good Twitch drops as well, by the way. Good armors. Um, it was neat to take the tour and look at all the tech on the back end and see these giant buses in, in the convention center that are responsible for sending the signals out, keeping Fidelity and, and the tech stuff on point. They have to play hopscotch with servers around the world because like any live streamed event from Monday Night Football to a political event to an esports event, they are getting targeted for DDoS attacks, which is crazy. I didn't know that. And so they're constantly having to bounce servers around to make sure they can keep the stream live. Uh, when asked about, you know, why is that? It has nothing to do with Halo. It doesn't matter if it's Call of Duty. It doesn't matter if it's a political event. It doesn't matter at all. When a big, a big live stream goes out there, they're just people in the world that want to attack it. And so any sporting event or, or big thing that you're watching that's being streamed, is always having to bounce and play hopscotch on servers to avoid DDoSs. So there were like 25 other HCS Raleigh's in the server space that they were having to duck and dodge and weave through, which was kind of neat to see. We went around and we looked at where the pro esport athletes are are in the back training, where the different teams like Cloud9, United, and Xset would would work uh in the back end and practice different things they were constantly getting on the sticks and practicing and communicating and it was wild they were absolutely annoyed that we were back there on this vip tour but it was cool to see their setups and just what it meant they were working on xbox development kits working on pcs so much money in these incredible headsets that they were using controllers keyboard mouses uh it, it was wild and then to walk up on the stage and see these really cool LED displays. I mean, it was it was nuts. There is a lot of work that goes into it. Uh, unfortunately, on day one, we were there, and the first three hours or so that we were there, there were tech difficulties, and the, the game kept getting disconnected on the LAN. That was a PC thing, from what I understand, not a Halo Infinite thing. And we watched them literally swap out the entire stage worth of PCs, monitors, connections, everything. Uh, it was a really cool event to experience. However, we only stayed for a day. The rest of it we watched online with everybody else. We wanted to, I wanted to hang out with my buddy Kev. Um, that's why I was in Raleigh was to hang out with him. It was an awesome thing to go to an esports event and experience it. Uh, but if I'm if I'm being honest, it it was an awesome experience, but the actual viewing of it, I, it, it fell flat. Right, all the tech difficulties on day one kind of soured it, and I didn't feel the need to be there live for the next two days. You know, say what you will about that. And maybe it wasn't my scene, but I much preferred watching it at home while playing games myself. Uh, but it was cool to see all these people in there. There were people repping their different favorite esports teams there and seeing Halo get all the positive vibes uh, was really cool also. So it was a great experience. I would do it again, uh, but I wouldn't necessarily go at the same times that I did. I wouldn't schedule the same moments to go. I wouldn't. I wouldn't go and plan to stay all day, if that makes sense. But it was a cool one. Thanks to thanks to probably four of you that wrote in asking about that one. This next question comes from Court Lalonde uh, from Xbox A. He says, what is the one thing you would love Xbox to improve on in the new year? Uh, and Martinez mostly responded to Court in this thread and said that he wants Game Pass and xCloud available on Apple in more pro uh, 
in more ways. I thought it already was, but maybe that's just a region-specific thing. Uh, Court, for me, this one seems so silly. I want Discord to be available over on Xbox so I can be in a Discord party and uh, play games. A lot of my friends, I know Sean Capri, he does Halo Saturdays, and I don't participate in them because I don't have an audio way to make that work. Um, I don't have a way to do that. I, I really want to play with certain communities in the Avengers community, but they talk on Discord while playing on Xbox. I don't have a way to do that, right? That, that doesn't work. I don't have a dual headset because I use the Steel Series Arctis 7s. 7s is the latest one. Um, I don't know. I haven't I haven't reviewed another new headset yet. Um, and I don't have an Xbox official headset that can do the dual channel thing. So yeah, that's something I would like to see is Discord come to Xbox. I don't know if it's ever going to. I feel like I remember something about that not happening. They also need to work on their uh, Game Pass spotlighting. They do. They bring a lot of games into Game Pass, and they do it in great comedic ways over on Twitter, but they need to spotlight indie games more often. So finding a way to curate and populate people's lists with more indie games so that they can bring better notoriety, better spotlight on some of these great creators that fill out the Game Pass roster is something I want to see happen as well. Uh, let's do one more question. Uh, and then we're going to go to our interview with Osama Dorius. Uh, Todd Oxtra writing in. Todd, always an amazing supporter of XEP. He says, so far, Xbox and Nintendo are silent on release dates for 2022, while PlayStation has a really solid first half lineup. Uh, are you expecting a quiet first half of the year for first party? I really hate when everything gets pushed to Q4. Todd, I think part of that is pandemic related. Uh, but Microsoft did just put out Forza Horizon 5 and... Uh, Halo Infinite. And those were kind of its two big pillar games that happened to land at the very end of 2021. Um, in the first half of the year, I don't think you're going to get much from Xbox first party in the AAA sense. They've got Redfall and Starfield slated for middle and end of 2022. And those are two big tentpole games. Uh, Nintendo, for their part, they have Breath of the Wild 2, which I feel like is in the first half of the year. And Sony, to, to your point, Sony is very front-loaded. Sony front-loaded 2021 as well. Like they had... Uh, what was it? Ratchet and Clank. And then they had, oh my gosh, Returnal. Ratchet and Clank and Returnal. They had a very good front and middle of 2021 and were very quiet in Q4 of 2021. So it's just an inverse schedule at this point uh, right now between Sony and Xbox. Um, I do not think you're going to be seeing much from Xbox. They've got their two heavy hitters. You'll get DLC expansions for Forza. You'll get some new news, new news on stuff coming to Halo Infinite, like a follow-up campaign, seasons two and three, co-op features coming in for Infinite. I don't, you're not going to get the campaign in the first half, but you are going to get more stuff coming to Halo Infinite. Um, I have a good authority that's happening. But I think that as they've, what you're seeing right now is the results of planning and pandemic planning kind of starting to equal out work from home, starting to become a thing uh, in a, comfortability sense like you're getting triple a games pandemic work from home style triple a games and it's just a matter of when they're available um redfall and starfield are the big ones for 2022 that we know of at the moment i for one am most anticipating gotham knights that's the one i'm looking forward to and thankfully that's multi-platform um, so you know that's where i'm looking at right now and nintendo what are they at? breath of the wild 2 i don't know man nintendo gets too many passes i don't i'm really disappointed with them as a company so 
All right, guys, that's going to do it with my portion of the show. Again, if you like the show, please be willing to go and rate it over on iTunes. Drop a five-star over on Spotify if you listen there. That's a new feature they've rolled out. Or throw a like over on the YouTube channel. It has been an amazing 2021 with you guys. I don't know if we'll get one more episode in before the end of the year, before the start of 2022, but you have allowed me in a solo-hosted show to thrive for two years at this point. And I am so grateful to all of you. So I wish you a happy holiday, uh, happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, any other uh, celebratory things that you do through this holiday. I appreciate you and hope you're able to spend it with loved ones and family. And more importantly, happy new year to all of you. I hope that the your safety and the years continue to, to get better post-pandemic as we exit out of this area uh, or era, I should say. I appreciate all of you. Please do enjoy this interview with Osama. He's the game director, or sorry, pardon me, I'm not the game director. He is the senior game designer over at WB Games Montreal. He is currently working on Gotham Knights. That is not the main focus of the interview. We'll be talking about him and his career, but I'm sure we got a few Batman questions in there. Uh, enjoy it. Please reach out to him on Twitter and offer him thanks. Cheers to all of you. Happy New Year. Take care, everybody. We are very fortunate now to welcome senior game designer at WB Games Montreal, a a teacher at Dawson College, Mr. Osama Dorius. Hello, sir. Hey, Luke. Thank you so much for. I'm the fortunate one. Thank you for inviting me on your show. I am am grateful to have you. You have a resume that, of course, spans a number of different games. I think many people right now might be tuning in uh, as you are working at WB Montreal on Gotham Knights, which we will not be addressing too much here in this interview for sure. Uh, <laughs> nothing wrong with that. I am ecstatic to know about your your journey as a game developer, how you ended up where you are uh, getting to work on such a beloved property. Uh, your career has taken you t- to Ubisoft. You've worked with Gameloft. How did you get in get started into game development? It's a really long story. So I'll tell you the medium-sized one if that's okay with you. Sure. Let's hear it. <laughs> so, I got into games before there were game schools, or rather before the first graduates of game school who graduated. Um, actually, I had studied political science and worked as a shipping agent. Um, and what a shipping agent does is we do like customs paperwork. We go on ships and we take care of their needs, whatever that may be. So we can either arrange for food to be delivered to them or take them out for a night bowling, whatever, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, that was like a quarter of the job and the rest was just paperwork, making sure that when the ship docks, that everything's in order, that they're able to either pick up, offload their cargo, if there's cargo involved, uh, that they have place to anchor, all those fun things, right? <laughs> so I did mm-hmm. that for a while and then I fell out of love with it. I loved some some of it and I didn't love uh, the rest of it, uh, which was mostly traveling, missing important dates because there's you know ports are all over the place. Sometimes you have to stay there for weeks. Um, that, that kind of was a little bit difficult. So I fell back to my uh, hobby that I had when I was younger. I used to make websites for my dad, uh, his, his businesses, and his friends' businesses. Um, and so I was self-taught. I, I used to do that when I was 14, 15. But wow. it taught me how to use Flash. And Flash allows you to make games. Mm-hmm. And I was a big-time gamer forever. I used to make even level. I used to even like dabble in the mod scene. I used to make levels for uh, StarCraft, Duke Nukem, Unreal Tournament, all those things. So when I had the the, the capacity, I used to make board games and card games when I was really, really young, even before I had to do anything digital. 
Um, and so when I had the opportunity to make game, like actual standalone games with Flash, I did, and I made a portfolio. And even then I didn't apply to be a game designer anywhere. I didn't see that as a, a viable career choice. It never dawned on me until one of my friends became a game designer. And all of a sudden I scrambled and with his help, I built a portfolio with games I had mostly already made. I just, you know, fine tuned a few work, like, you know, corrected a couple of design docs that I had, did a few things. And within six months, I had a, a pretty decent, well, it's terrible by t- by my standards today. But at the time, <laughs> I considered a pretty decent portfolio. Uh, even then, I had applied to hundreds of jobs, and I only got one callback, which resulted in one interview, which resulted in my first job in the industry, which was at Gameloft uh, Montreal, working on a poker game. And like I said, there's the short version of the story. There's actually... A lot more to it than that, but you know, that's you crazy. The whole time talking about that. <laughs> no, man, you're the spotlight. That's what we're here for. That's what we're here for. So you ended up uh, working at GameLoft in Montreal, and your your resume has uh, quite a few different types of projects uh, yeah. on it. Like when I go through it and look at it, I'm seeing games like For Honor. I'm yes. seeing games like Dungeon Hunter, which I know I've I've, I've played around with you played you did dungeon hunters four and five it looks like and you work with big properties like like mickey mouse and the incredibles that's yes. got to be surreal and angry birds and a few others here and there <laughs> yeah yeah it's a lot of fun uh i i mean if you had asked me going into the industry what my expectations were uh i would have told you nothing like i wouldn't have expected to be working on any big properties or anything big uh i was what i wanted to do my plan coming into the industry was to work for about a year, learn everything there is to make about game dev, and then start mm-hmm. my own company and come up with my own IPs. And of course, within a few weeks, I realized that there's no way I could learn everything I need to know in a year. Mm-hmm. But it took, it, like, you don't know what you don't know, right? That's one of the things. You don't know how much there is that you need to learn before you, you, know, you have enough of a foundation to do what it is that you want to do. That's normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're you're now in a role of senior game designer. Obviously, you don't get there right away. What were you doing early on um, in game development? Like when you arrived at GameLoft and through, like what were your different roles there? So actually, it's very interesting because each company, um, each company has a different structure, different uh, setup based on its culture, based on its size. Uh, when I started at GameLoft, we used to work on mobile games before there were smartphones. So for, for all you youngins out there, those are the flip phones that had tiny screens and the digits, like the, the actual numeric uh, numpad on the phone itself. And we made games for, for that. And then the iPhone basically became a thing. The first smartphone, the, the first uh, mainstream smartphone became a thing a couple of years later and changed the way that we approach games. But when we were making flip, flip phone games, the average team was about five or six people. We were tiny. And so when we had a designer, we had one or maybe two game designers. And then you had one or two game programmers, one or two artists, you know, the, those were the roles. And the teams were so small that we shared producers, you know, the project managers that planned everything. Um, we shared them and we shared the audio team with the whole project, with the whole studio. I mean, every project had the same small audio team that would uh, jump from project to project. We were tiny. All in all, maybe maximum uh, a dozen people would touch the game like mm-hmm. before it was released. Uh, so whenever there was a thing that was design related, you had to do it. But regardless, there were no specialties. You couldn't be good at one thing or another. You had to do all of it. 
So if there's level design, you have to do level design. If there's UI design, you have to do UI design. Same is true for AI, for narrative, anything. There are specializations when you're that small don't really exist. Uh, there are interests. If you had two designers on the team, then based on interests, one person can do one thing or like, you know, divide the tasks in half. As the teams grew, there was a need to specialize. But me, my personality type is I am a generalist. I am a jack of all trades. I, I prefer to be that way. So whenever I was given a choice to stay with a franchise or move on to another franchise, to, to, to stay with the same discipline or change discipline, uh, nearly every single time I chose to change. I like being challenged. I like trying something new that I'm not good at. Um, and it made me into the designer I am today. And that's not to say that it's better or worse. But I mean, I did camera design on asphalt, the, you know, crash caps. But I also did the progression system in asphalt. Those are very different skill sets. One is... Yeah, no kidding. It's more like 3C design and the other is more system design. 3C stands for camera uh, character and control, which is like gameplay design. The camera fits into that. You know, that's what, that's what it is. Uh, and the other, I did, you know, like progression systems, like what... What are the levels? What order do you beat them? Which how, how do you get stars? How do you unlock cars? That kind of thing, uh, which are very very different. But those are two things I was interested in, and it's very rare that you have designers that could think, you know, with both sides of those brains, the fast and the slow. Um, but you know, those are things that I enjoyed doing. When I worked on um, Guitar Rock Tour, I, I I carried over what I learned with cameras. But when I worked on Midnight Pool, I was pretty much the only designer, so I did everything, even designed the tutorials, the UI, the characters, name it. When I worked on Dungeon Hunter, I specialized in narrative. And, and every project I moved, I shifted from one thing to the other. And when I started working initially uh, at, at WB Games, I actually started as an economy designer, uh, a specialty. And then I became uh, the lead designer. And then since then, I've, I've stepped down and I've gone back to being uh, a senior designer and I'm working on systems on the project. So you just keep shifting from one thing uh, to the next, I just keep shifting from. Yeah, that like one you thing to keep next. shifting from one <laughs> thing to the next. <laughs> but, but we have other designers in every studio that I've worked with that are the other way around. They love to specialize. They became the principal designer of AI or the principal designer of combat or that kind of thing, and that's that's what they're good at. They have one interest. They deep dive into it. They get knowledge of that, uh, and we need those people as much as you need the generalist who just tie everything together or who kind of can touch everything, right? Um, so, I mean, I don't know how, how much deeper you want me to go into that or if you want me to talk about all the other jobs that I've had in the industry, but generally this is it. Like whenever I was offered, that's why I've worked on platformers and VR games and um, you know action games and combat games and like hidden object games. And like, if you look at my, I've, I've shipped in my career um, near 30 games of varying sizes. And it's rare that you could find two or three that are in the same genre. And that's what excites me. So whenever, like, you know, I get, like, at this stage of my career, I'm very fortunate. I get people poking me for jobs left and right. Whenever someone said, hey, you worked on this thing. We'd like you to do the exact same job here. That's when I completely lose interest where I'm like, okay, what else you got? <laughs> what, what do you have that I haven't done? <laughs> Man, do you know how hard it is as the interviewer to be like, all right, where do I go next? Because you have <laughs> so many. Okay. All right. Yeah, I would uh, rewind for me. It's back to the yes. indie days where you did like 15 jobs on one game, right? Yes. Also, you mentioned Asphalt, which I loved the early Asphalts. They were really fun. I, I just, those are the ones I played on my on DS and on awesome. my phone. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. So 
you have this team of like six to 12 people at various points and you do multiple roles. What if you found that no one on the team was good at a certain role? What then? Do you have to go learn a new skill set? Do you have to outsource? Yes, absolutely. So actually, let me let me rewind and, and let you know how I got started in the industry more specifically. So when Gameloft reached out to me, what they were looking for was a poker expert, a game designer who knew poker. And I just so happened that I, in my interest, I wrote poker. Just interests. That's it. Like I didn't work on anything poker. I didn't have anything poker in my portfolio. But they have like this algorithm, like a lot of companies do, where they check, they scan CVs for words, and poker came up. So they gave me a call and they said, hey, so we're looking for a game designer who's a poker expert. I'm like, that's me. But I absolutely was not a poker expert. I used to play it as an interest, you know, just like with friends, like once every couple of weeks, not even for money, just for fun. Um, but I, I was, you know, desperate for to get into the industry. So I said, yeah, yeah, that's me. They're like, there's a test on Friday. And I said, okay, no problem, I'm ready. But I wasn't ready. I went to the local library and I bought five poker books and I didn't sleep for three days as I crammed everything there is that I could find, like learn everything I could find about poker in a very short period of time. And I aced that test. But then I, I lived with imposter syndrome for honestly about three years. One day, uh, because I, could, you know, I only worked on one poker game and afterwards I worked on other different kinds of games. But I felt like my entire career was a lie. I lied to get in. And even though I passed the test, uh, I, I misrepresented myself. So I spoke to my boss. But you went uh, and learned poker for this. <laughs> I did. I did. In this very short period of time. And in essence, I kind of became a poker expert. But that, That's a game most people, unless you're data from Star Trek, that's a game you don't learn quick. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. And I I learned like complex theories, like the rule of two and four and what are continuous plays and things that like had I just went in with the knowledge I had of poker before I I did the cramming, I would have failed that test completely. I would not have been able to answer anything because even if I knew what the concept was by playing, I didn't know the term for it. And that's what they were looking for. They they were looking for a a studied poker expert because they needed someone who uh, can design a game, design an AI of a poker like playing it is not enough. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Right. So, Man. yeah. So I actually took my boss for, for lunch. Uh, and I wanted to break the big news that I had lied to him three years before because I, I couldn't live with the, with the lie anymore. And uh, he laughed at me. He said, Osama, I, I knew you weren't an expert. You just wrote poker in interest. And I don't care to get an expert. What I care about is to get somebody who will be able to learn what they need to learn for the next project. He's like, what, what was the second project you worked on? Worked on? And I told him it was Midnight Pool. He's like, I never asked you if you're a pool expert because you already demonstrated that you could become a poker expert in a short period of time. And that's all I needed. And then he just put my heart at ease. But that's what it is. Like, if you have these small teams, especially back then, especially when there was very few resources to learn anything about game design other than trying it yourself. Very few. Like, right now on YouTube, you could learn almost everything. Almost everything. Just you could, if you're, it's it's still hard to find, but you can find books that'll teach you game theory and concepts. You, you'll be able to, at a touch of your fingertips, download games like uh, and try them and study them. Like there's so much access now compared to when when I was getting in the industry, where it was very limited, and even there was even less before that, right? So what he was looking for was someone who could adapt, who could gain the skills, and that. That's what I carried with me throughout. That is one of my skills that I did have, even though I, I, like I did, I, I played pool a little bit with my friends here and there. I wasn't very good at it, 
And I did the same thing, except this time the company bought the books. They bought me a whole bunch of pool books. I, I you know, learned everything there was to know. And I designed like pool tutorials. I learned the theory, was able to work on the physics of how like what one ball hits the other, where it's supposed to go. And I was able to um, you know, design the system around that enough for a programmer to be able to code it. And then we released Midnight Pool on the Wii now 14 years ago, 15 years ago, something like that. But that didn't come out of nowhere. We had to we had to teach ourselves. We had to learn it ourselves. I uh, so was it well received once it went public? Yeah, actually, Midnight Pool was really good. It was. Uh, I think it had a uh, eighty-seven Metacritic at the time, something along that, uh, those lines. So it wasn't like you know game of the year, but it was eighty-seven. Not bad. I was very proud of it. So what we're hearing, listeners, is is Osama is immensely talented at all the things. <laughs> He's just that guy. No, that's exactly what I didn't say. What I said is I'm not <laughs> immensely talented at all the things. I know a little bit about all the things because, you know, I've, I've jumped from one thing to another in my career. But I know many people who are immensely talented at one or two things. Those are the mm-hmm. people who are crucial when you're working on big games because you need specialists as well. That's so cool. That's that's <laughs> wild. That is is wild. And so you you you've learned this jack of all trades thing. And again, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm trying to like capture everything you said into this. <laughs> now you're a senior game designer. Was there a middle ground in between here? Yes, actually. There. I mean, there's a junior. That's everyone starts off as a junior designer, and then there's mm-hmm. uh, what people refer to as just game designer. Sometimes mm-hmm. internally we call it intermediate if you need a label, so intermediate game designer. Okay. And then you have a senior. And depending on which project you're on, which company you're on, what culture you're on, uh, they mean different things. A junior generally is almost like an assistant game designer. Not exactly, but almost. Uh, mm-hmm. They don't own their own features. They have tasks that belong to some like uh, other features. Um, and uh, they are given work by usually seniors, sometimes intermediate designers. And you know those people help them and guide them to teach them. Then, the intermediates will generally own their own small features, not big topics, but small features. And that's in preparation for them to become seniors. And seniors will generally own uh, a, a topic, right? And principal will be uh, in the expert of the studio on a topic. So you may have, for example, multiple AI designers. But you'll, each studio will generally have one principal AI designer. Mm-hmm. That's the, the expert of the studio, the, the, the tiebreaker, the go-to person, the authority. That's how it usually goes. So I, my, my career path is not to be a principal in anything. It's not my intention. I would keep jumping around uh, as, as much as a studio will allow me to and try different things and work on different genres and jump on different IPs uh, because that's just my interest. But many designers, I, I don't even know if it's most or not. Uh, I guess I'll, I should put a poll up and see if people where people lean more. I'm curious now. But I know many designers, their goal is to become a principal designer in a specific topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Both are valuable. Both are very, very valuable. So we talked about Gameloft quite a bit. You've also have previously worked on, on Ubisoft. Your your website says For Honor uh, was yes. your, your work there. Um, so... I did yeah, two, two main things on For Honor. I worked on some uh, single-player missions, um, and I also was the one of the main people on the co-op modes of Co Honor. Oh, sorry, of For Honor. Those are my contributions to that big project. Because of course, the bigger the project gets, the fewer things you touch when you're on, <laughs> on the team, right? Right, right. And what would you say? 
I mean, I've asked this question of many designers before, but the biggest difference between working in indie and uh, working on AAA and then AAA well-known properties, like For Honor ended up being quite popular. Yeah. Uh, what would you say, like, is your biggest difference between the two kind of uh, spotlights? The, I mean, there's a lot that I could say to this, but the thing that jumps out the most is just resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I worked in indie, we pretty much had to get everything right on the first pass or close enough because there was no there was no give, there was no leeway. Uh, that was my indie experience. I know other people have a very different indie experience, but my indie experience is we had a finite number uh, of months to work on a thing and mm-hmm. as a tight deadline for things to get done. And whenever a thing, if it was functional and it reached that deadline, we put it in and moved on because there was another thing that had to be done afterwards. While in AAA, it's a, it works a little bit differently. There's a, there is a minimum quality pass that has to be achieved before you could move on. And you, it's, you can't compromise on that. So generally, um, the, and this differs a little bit from studio to studio, what the threshold is or whatnot. But generally, things will get cut because the other thing isn't good enough yet. So mm-hmm. more, more often than not, uh, the scope of the project you initially start with is much bigger than what you will end up with, and everyone knows it. That's mm-hmm. that's part of the pie. You're you're pushing a lot of features to a certain quality level, and if you can't reach it, if it doesn't work, because the, you know game systems they don't work in a vacuum; they interact mm-hmm. with each other. And sometimes, even if you have a perfect design of a thing that worked in a different game, when you bring it over to another game and it interacts with other systems, it doesn't work as well. It doesn't work at all. Uh, sometimes there are other factors like um, the expert that you had working on it left, or you know, sometimes it's uh, we need something else that it's work and you need to shift resources to it. Like there's so many things that people don't see, so many decisions that happen on a day to day, week to week, month to month, that people are are not aware of, uh, that cause sometimes a feature that's close to completion that didn't reach a quality bar to either be canceled to make room for something else, or something else is canceled to allow that feature to reach a certain polish level. And I know that established indies uh, don't have this the same problem as, as the indies that I worked for, which were you know struggling indies, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, established indies, generally, they've released one big game that, that made them a lot of money. They have money in the bank and they could follow uh, a similar route to AAA where they could design X things if they need X minus three, that you know they'll still design the X because they'll take the best of it. But in general, indies, it's it's yeah, it's it's you're you're scrappy, right? You're doing mm-hmm. the best you can with what you have. It's scaffolding, and then you you ship it, and you learn from it. And your next game is going to get better at that thing because you're building on what you what you learned before. Um, so the advantage there is you're working on more projects. Like generally, the, the indie games of that caliber, they take six months, nine months. They're not five years, six years like AAA games, right? Mm-hmm. And because of that. Um, you're building on this knowledge, you're building on this tech, tech that you're building. Uh, and so the iteration, the, the quality goes up with each game in a more uh, in a more clear way. Like mm-hmm. it, you could draw a line and say, oh, I see where they, what they did with this game and what they learned from it and how they brought that forward. And you can see, see that with a lot of the games that we see today. Like the game, the winner of the Game Awards, it takes two. Mm-hmm. If you look at their previous games, you can see how they built on their knowledge of what makes a good co-op game. The mistakes right. that they made, what they learned, the tech that they had, and how that, like that, it, it would have been incredibly surprising, like like for them to have won the Game Awards on their first co-op game ever as a studio, 
But it's not as surprising. I mean, it's still a little bit surprising because they were the underdog, in, in my opinion. But still, not mm-hmm. as surprising when you see that they've like built knowledge and tech and all the, for, throughout all these years. Um, in the time that they made all these games, maybe one or uh, one AAA game would have come out from them. But because they were they were smaller and indie, they were able to to make three games. I recently rolled credits on on three different games of three different sizes: uh, the Gunk, Chorus, and Halo Infinite. And in watching Halo Infinite's credits roll, it is staggering how many people worked on that project. And I'm thinking about kind of what you're talking about with like over overlapping workforces where you need to have X thing in order to have X system work. And if you don't get that, something gets scrapped. Is there a size too big for a studio in your experience or, or opinion? Well, yes. Um, <laughs> I, basically, the the old adage or adage, I don't know how to pronounce that word, uh, of you can't have nine women make a baby in a month. Uh, it's true, right? There's a I've never heard that. <laughs> <laughs> we use it in, in, in tech a lot. And it's absolutely true. There are situations where if you put more people on a problem, it'll actually make it worse and not better. Mm-hmm. Um, you need an expert, you need it to be more tight. And if you put more people, um, the time it'll take for that senior to review the code of all these other people who have never touched it before, they could have finished it in half that time. And that holds true. Sometimes the right choice is still to put more people because you want to train them because uh, you need to, you know, like make sure that they know what they're doing so they could work on the next features. But in terms of just, you know, ship it, put it, take it out the door. What I, what I find is... Um, the, the studios I worked with in the, in the past, a lot of times what they would do is they would outsource some work to other studios, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, CoDev. And um, what they would have to do is give them work that's as self-contained as possible. Um, so we did, we did, I could give you an example on a project that I didn't work on, but like the Far Cry games, which I didn't work on, but I know, I know this from, you know, being in Ubisoft at the time. The Far Cry mm-hmm. games, when they outsourced, for example, uh, to another studio, um, they gave them all of the animals in, in the island, as an example. Because, okay. yes, animals do interact with the player and different things, but they're more or less self-contained. And because of that, they're able to just give it to a different team and say, you deliver this, go. And we'll give you a little bit of direction here and there. We don't need to coordinate on times or on vision or whatever. One person from the main studio, whoever's heading it, can just oversee it and give guidelines and make sure that the designs are shared with the right with the other people to make sure that systems work together. But the rest can be handled. The entire rest of it can be handled by the other studio. How the, the animals are animated, what sounds they emit, how they interact with different things, you know, all the pathfinding, everything um, can be taken care of by one studio. So if you're able, if your game is something where you can divide it in parts, uh, there's almost no limit to how big you can have your team. It's just it's just you're going to need a lot more overhead, a lot more people to coordinate all that. It's a big, um, like it's a, a huge number of spinning plates that you need someone to just watch and make sure that nothing falls. But it's possible. Some games, like if if it's a small game with a few systems and you have a short deadline, then you you can't do that. You can't bring more people on board and divide the same feature into four. It doesn't work. One person is, is more uh, equipped to handle that. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. It makes yeah. sense. That's why uh, we're able to have, for example, Assassin's Creed with over a thousand people across five studios working on them. It's because it's a, a big open world game, 
you could have like the main story, for example, being t- taken care of by the, um, the the main studio, and you could say X, Y, or Z feature for each other studio that, and you just have something like the QA check it every once in a while. It works, uh, but like for 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 Honor, what it, it was a lot more complex. There's not that many moving parts compared to all these big open world games. So we didn't actually grow as big um, uh, as, as an Assassin's Creed or a Far Cry. And it made sense. It's not that we couldn't. It's not that we didn't have the resource. It's that it just didn't make sense to. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been part of a group that made the mistake, the the nine women tried to make a baby in a month type thing where you, it, tr- it was tried to spread too thin and you had to refocus? That is every game. Pretty much. <laughs> it's normal because you can't guess the sweet spot. You can't guess. You have to um, use your intuition after a certain time. You kind of have an idea of how big or how small, but you're going to make the mistake and you have to reevaluate. It's normal. You're going to um, hire an outsource team or, or work with a partner that's going to, um, you know, basically it's not going to work. It might work out or it might not work out perfectly and you might have to shift things around, but that's game development. It's normal. You, you realize that, oh, having two people on this um, wasn't efficient, so we're going to move one person here or that kind of thing. Those are conversations that happen, like, I won't say on a daily basis, that's exaggerating, but, you know, often enough, when you have that many moving parts, it's normal that you have to course correct all the time. If you don't, that's a mistake. Someone's sitting idle or someone's way overworked. So uh, an armchair analyst approach on this one is... Why is it? Why does it take so long for companies to get it right to figure out to figure out that sweet spot? Because I feel like we constantly hear about crunch and we constantly hear about pipeline issues and, and whatnot. Is it? What is it? What's the reason for that uh, in your experience? Many reasons. You can't point to just one, uh, mm-hmm. but in my opinion, crunch exists because management allows it to exist. There, mm-hmm. you can deliver a smaller scope game that's tighter. You could have a longer deadline and put more money into it. You could do, you could have so many uh, ways to fix the issue of crunch, which is just, but it all boils down to, we don't crunch. This is the time you clock out. We'll deal with the consequences. And a lot of the studios who have crunch, they're just not willing to make that decision. Uh, in terms of how come studios can't figure it out, it's because things change all the time. They will never figure it out. This is not a problem that's solvable, period. Mm-hmm. Um, tech changes evolves, uh, like in- industry standards evolve. Uh, the, the, the people that you're working with, they get new jobs, they move on. You get new people that you have to onboard. You, you're constantly trying to figure out who's good at what and what you can assign them. And uh, like, the, there are too many moving parts to figure it out. If, this is not like creating a car and then having a mold and then having it in a factory that you keep dishing out the same car. Imagine you had to craft a different type of vehicle for a different terrain by hand each time, one after the other, mm-hmm. there's going to be growing pains. That's kind of what making a video game is. Each individual one has to be by like different than the one before, or it's going to fail. It's going to be like, oh, it's exactly the same as this one. So it, they, you have a moving target. You have too many moving pieces. That's never going to be solvable. So the only way to fix crunch is to put your foot down and say, we don't crunch. The consequences be damned. Maybe it's not having an announcement of a date uh, before the game is ready. Maybe mm-hmm. it's like, you know, there's so many other things you could do. And then, like, I know I'm saying this and I'm giving all marketing people heart attacks because for them, they need a date or they need to, to make it out by Christmas or whatever it is so that they could sell whatever copies that they need to make, right? Each, each game has a target based on, it's not based on nothing. They're based on 
numbers in an Excel sheet. You know what I mean? There's a, there, the targets are there for a reason, but that's what it boils down to. It's what people value uh, or what the people in power are valuing. If they're valuing profits over people, then they're going to be more lax when it comes to overtime or crunch. If they're valuing people over um, the, the profits or products, and it's a tight, it's a difficult thing to balance, right? It's a slider that you move it too much to the left or too much to the right. Too much to the left, um, and it may not be profitable depending on the size of the studio that you have, and then therefore you might have to lay off people, which doesn't help. Too much to, to, to the right, and you're burning your people out, and you're going to have to hire more people anyway, and it's a very short-term way of thinking. And, like, it's, there's no, I, I you know, I'm sorry if, if I'm not giving you a straight answer. It's because I don't believe there is one. I think we, like, I'm, a strong advocate for people first. So consequences be damned, I would put people people before everything. But there's a reason that I'm not an executive at a company with these values. <laughs> well, one of the other roles that you take on in the gaming industry is that of educator, teacher. And as I, as I ask you these questions, I hear so much of that side of you. And my hope is that anyone listening is, is also learning from you, including the executives and marketing people. Um, but... <laughs> I, it sounds to me as you speak that you take a lot of that teaching role into your development and that they work cyclically, that you that your development take, informs your teaching and vice versa. Uh, perhaps I'm biased given my own you know <laughs> day job being a teacher, but uh, is that a, a fair statement to make? I believe so. You'd have to ask my students to really get, or even people I work with, but I believe so. I believe I, I'm, I'm the same person whether I'm in one or the other uh, like I've been, people have told me that I am brutally honest without the brutal part. <laughs> so with compassion instead, but still like very, very direct about what it is. I remember um, when I, I, I'll tell you a little bit about when I started teaching actually, and I'll, I'll lead into this, but I started teaching um, level design because that was what was available at the time. And I've done level design before, as I mentioned, I'm a jack of all trades. Um, and I had actually really good evaluations at Dawson College where I was teaching uh, okay. as a teacher. So they offered me to be the coordinator of the level design program. And I told them, I'm very happy to teach one level design class, but this isn't my specialty. I want to be a game design uh, coordinator. And they did not have a game design program. Um, so I thought that was going to be the end of that conversation. Uh, and But I told them, if you want, I can create a game design program for you. And the the uh, my boss at the time, uh, the manager of the of the of the program of the uh, department, the director of the department, he said, "Do you have any experience creating a program?" I'm like, "No," but I didn't have any experience making games, and I learned that. So how hard could this be? He kind of like laughed at me, uh, but he gave me a binder which was the level design program, and I took it home and over the next six months studied it, reverse engineered it, and with the help of friends from the industry, I created a game design program. And I came back and I booked an appointment with him. And he's like, what are you, what are you, back, what are you doing back here for? And I said, oh, I, I made that game design program. He thought he'd never see me again. He thought I would, <laughs> I would just say, yeah, I'll create a program and then I'll disappear into the night or something. But um, he took me in, like, in, into the meeting and he looked at what I had and he said, this is good. You got all the technical language wrong, but I could help you with that. And he assigned me a, um, a technical writer who works for the school who helps like you know with these like similar cases except she had to do more work with me because i i literally did not have any education in this right like i didn't know how to do it uh, i did all the legwork all the content was good but all the presentation it just was not up to their standards which i had no idea what their standards would be anyway right so and um so she helped me over the course of a couple of weeks we had a couple of sessions 
to fix the language. And I went back and I corrected it. Where Whatever I learned, I applied it to the entire doc. And I pitched it to the Ministry of Education. And they approved the program. And I became the coordinator of the program. And I started teaching in the program that, um, that I became a coordinator with. One of my criteria that I had is that the program had to be tuition-free. Because one of the things that started happening at that time is there were a lot more graduates than there were positions in the industry. And that ethically I had an issue with. I didn't want to like put people in debt and, and, and then potentially have them not find a job. But I was okay with giving them education that was free and then hoping that they find their dream job. That, that was something that, you know, as long as I was honest about it. And which brings me to the original point that I wanted to say. In our info sessions, I would actually spend a, a lot of time to talk about the, how small of a chance, even if you go through the program, you would have in order to get a job in the industry. And this would, like, in, initially, the director, after he heard, heard me say this, he's like, you can't say that. I'm like, why? It's the truth. And I need people to be prepared. I, I don't want people to come in with false expectations. But he's like, but nobody else does that in info sessions. We tell them about, like, the good things. We talk about the positive. I'm like, I can't, I can't do that. That's a deal breaker for me. So eventually it worked out. We, we came to an agreement and the agreement was, I'm going to do it <laughs> because I wasn't compromising on it. He said, okay. And I told them what, what, the, what the reality is. And actually our placement rate was higher than any other school in the city as a result, because people who were like, you know, who were in it because they thought they were going to get rich quick or that there was a guaranteed sure shot or were kind of in uh, half in half out, they didn't apply. It, it saved us from that. So the people that actually applied that we got in were, uh, more devoted, more dedicated. And as a result, they had a higher chance of getting into the industry and our placement rates were initially really high. And of course, they dropped from year to year because you know the industry became more um, competitive. Mm-hmm. But at least, but that thing about telling them the truth in the info session, being honest with them in their classrooms, if you ask any of my students, you'll see that it persisted throughout. Like that was a thing I would not compromise on. You have to be very open and realistic about people, like about this situation to people. Um, and that's why I kind of jump in on, on Twitter when someone says, just stick with it, you'll get it eventually. Uh, I, as kindly as possible, I, I'll, I'll say, you might not, and you have to be prepared for the possibility of it not working out. Because I know many people who it didn't work out for, but who moved on and did other things and they were very happy and they made games on the side now. One of my friends, Tom, he's in Nova Scotia, Canada now. And he's a lumberjack and he makes games for fun on, and he has subscribers on Patreon um, and they, they help, you know, they, they help fund his passion of making games. And he has, and he's extremely happy doing that. And that's, you know, that's a, that's a valid way to be part of the quote unquote industry um, without putting so much pressure on yourself too. Not everyone's going to make it. That's the absolute reality. And many people make it and leave because it's not what they expected because so many people put it on a pedestal. And it's just, it's a job. Like, I don't want to say like any other. There are differences. It's a passion job. So it's very similar to working movies or working um, in music industry or things like that. But it's not perfect. There are hard parts to the job. There are boring parts to the job. There are parts that you tough out so you can get to the other parts. There are people in the industry who are, most people in the industry are great. There are many people in the industry you do not want to work with who, who you know, we're pretty open about that. Like I'm pretty open about that on Twitter as well. There are a lot of undesirables in the industry as well. And if people don't talk about any of these things, then poor juniors will come in and have high expectations and 
they're just going to be defeated. They're not going to be prepared to put up with it. I have no idea how we got on this topic from school. Sorry, but well, <laughs> it's the lesson tangent that, after it, tangent. <laughs> well, no, it's the lesson that I often wish that we could tell incoming teachers is like, you know, this profession is brutal. It's hard. Yeah. Most people don't last and you should not do this unless you are ready for X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about a, a very subtle reality of what you said about having, you know, giving them free tuition and whatnot. How did you handle that like financially? Like how are you able to financially teach that and then st- still offer so free classes? I'm lucky I'm in Canada. So in Canada, we have the possibility of uh, in colleges, not, not so much in some universities, but in colleges to make classes tuition free if they fit certain criteria and if it gets approved by the minister of education. So basically what it, it wasn't a thing we had to create. It was a, uh, a uh, there was already a pipeline for it. I just wasn't interested in pursuing it unless we went through that pipeline. That doesn't mean we could do the same thing in, in the States, for example. I know the rules are gotcha. different. But in, in Canada, there was already an avenue for that. We just had to make sure that the class was over a certain number of hours and over um, a certain number of classes per, per term or things like that and get approval from the school because the school obviously makes less money when it's tuition-free because they um, are paid completely by subsidies from the government in that situation. So they might not be interested. Why would they do it? That kind of thing. So mm-hmm. like, for me, I had to put my, my foot down to say this, this or nothing because they're like, we'll explore all the different options and see which one is best. Um, and because people are so passionate about getting into games, a lot of people are willing to spend a lot of money to, to learn about them. And that's why I thought that they were going to lean the other way, right? Usually, whenever you start a program that's tuition-free, it's for things that people are not willing to spend money on, where for industries that are having a hard time recruiting people, which is not the gaming industry, if you follow my meaning. Right. So... So it's not, it's not like, yes, our teachers in our program, they know this. They are paid like three times less than at a competing university. They're there because they want to help students. And they're there because they believe in our values. I actually, I'm in this category as well. I'm constantly being offered jobs teaching at a university that would pay me three times more than I'm being paid. Because I stepped down as coordinator last year. I'm just a teacher in the program now. Um, mm-hmm. and just a I'm teacher. All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, sorry. I didn't mean it that way. Actually, I way <laughs> prefer teaching and coordinating. And I'm very open about that. Uh, I did the coordinating part cause I had to, I do the teaching, teaching part cause I love to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that's why I stepped down as a coordinator and, uh, stayed on as a teacher, even though I could literally be making three times more for a university that does have tuition in their programs, I would rather, um, teach in the college and, and make less because that's it aligns with my values. Of course it does. I created the program, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, no, that does make sense. <laughs> uh, some of the effort, other efforts you say, and you, you've mentioned this, I've seen you say things like this on Twitter. Uh, I, I've noted it a couple times in just different conversations and interviews is that you've also worked to uh, bring about kind of Muslim representation and improve the Muslim re- representation in the gaming industry. Uh, yes. You even noted on your website that you like to give uh, marginalized voices a better spotlight, you know, for yes. people and causes and whatnot. I wonder if you could comment on that just a little bit and how it has impacted your career for better or worse uh, through the years. So when I first started in the industry uh, a long time ago, um, the, the conversation about diversity and inclusion wasn't mature, uh, actually barely even started if it was there at all. Like I didn't even know that terms like microaggression existed as just mm-hmm. an example. 
the people were a lot more uh, comfortable with uh, saying things that right now would be deemed like you know, completely unacceptable. They were. Mm-hmm. It was very very common to hear things that were inappropriate. Um, I, you know, I, I had so many examples of people telling me I was one of the good Muslims, like thinking that that's a compliment or oh, um, making a joke about me being a closet terrorist or something like that at the workplace while my bosses were laughing. Like that kind of situation was mm. so common. Uh, and these were honestly good people. They were not, you know, bad people. They, they just didn't know better and they didn't understand the, the impact of what they were saying, but they, generally they were very kind to me. They were welcoming of me. They didn't, they, you know, they didn't, it wasn't so much their actions as it was their word, but I'm not making excuse for, for them. I'm just letting you know that the people right now who do say these microaggressions, oftentimes they're because they're, um, they don't care or they're doing it as a statement, right? Well, mm-hmm. back then this was the normal thing. Like that's why when you watch a lot of movies, for example, from the nineties, they're very cringeworthy because of what you know the, the content because there wasn't mm-hmm. this wasn't as widespread, and I was a junior in the industry. I kept my head down, so I laughed along and said nothing mm-hmm. um, because I was worried about losing my job or like being you know getting denied uh, promotions if the wrong people uh, took offense to me taking offense. Right? As you look back, was that a realistic fear? I, as I look back, 100%, as I, right now, when juniors ask me what to do in the same situation, I tell, I tell them to keep their heads down. Uh, basically, escalate at one level higher only and one time and watch carefully to see what your boss does or how they react. And if they brush it aside or don't do anything, keep your head down. And if it's too unbearable, find an exit strategy. Because that's a reality. I mean, a lot of people say, "Don't no, call it out and 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 uh, do the work and all that." Yes, if you have power. If you don't have power, th- what that's gonna—it's th- too easy to get rid of you. It's too easy to push you out of the way. And that I still say that right now to juniors. I tell them, "Watch yourselves." I've been in that situation. I've seen it happen many times. I've been at workplaces where. I've seen someone be rude to someone else, for, like who's a, an Arab, but not to me because I'm a senior and they're a junior. And Jeez. like, and they make the jokes to one person and not to me. And I had to call that situation out. You don't expect a junior to do anything about that. You expect the senior to step in and say that wasn't appropriate because the, of the power dynamic is not, uh, you know, because of the existence of the power dynamic in that relationship, right? So it still, yes, absolutely was true back then. It's still true today just to a lesser degree, because people are more careful about it. Most people for the right reasons, because they don't want to do the wrong thing. Some people for the wrong reasons, because they don't want to be quote unquote canceled. But it's still, mm-hmm. it's still true today. Man, man, that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. And I, I, it's a lot for a lot of different reasons as, as the historically most privileged demographic of being a white male. Like I think back to the things in my childhood, right? I'm in my mid thirties now, but as a 15 year old, the things that I would say, and I'm horrified by that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to the, to a point you made earlier, like in my heart, I was not trying to be cruel or silly or, or, or vile, but then the education and the time it, it, it changes. I, I suppose it like it makes you look back and to know that it still has to happen and that you still have to tell, to put, tell juniors to put their heads down. I mean, that, that horrifies me that it's taken me 20 years to get to this point. 
and I still have learned learning to do, but still after that long, it, I don't know. It, it, it affects me, I guess I, I lose words. If that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. I, when I was younger, I used to listen to Andrew Dice Clay and copy a lot of his jokes. So yeah, I'm in that world too. I don't want to sound like a hypocrite. I was sensitive to whatever affected me and less sensitive to whatever uh, didn't target me in my identities. And that's wrong. But like, I've grown, I'm learning, I'm constantly, I, I welcome when people call me out because then I won't make that mistake again and potentially hurt someone who I love or even who I don't know, it doesn't matter. That, that's the kind of growth that we need not fear of being called out or being uh, you know, canceled or whatever people are saying, because that's, that's insincere. That just means people will learn what they're allowed to do or what they're not allowed to do that will not get them in a lot of trouble instead of actually having empathy and thinking about what affects people, which is what the important thing is. Because mm -hmm. if you learn that, if you teach yourself to have empathy, then you can predict what's okay and what's not okay in some situations or, or like, you know, be like, oh, that, that felt wrong instead of, Oh, oh, that felt like it got me in trouble. It's not the same thing. Right. One is reactionary yeah. and one is more like, heartfelt. Yes, absolutely. And something we so, try to teach students often. Exactly. Um, that's why actually when I was um, at Gameloft at one point, we had a, a game that we're working on called a Modern Combat. And that was the straw, the, the last straw for me, uh, where we had one mission that took place in a mosque. And it was desecrating the mosque with like a, in, in, in every way. And I was like, I don't care at this point. That's why I was an intermediate designer. I wasn't a junior anymore, but I wasn't a senior either. Like it was, I still would have kept my head head down if I was a junior, if I'm perfectly honest. But I felt I had enough clout at that point to speak out. And that game had a lot of instances of problematic instances, especially by today's standard, but even by, by the time standard. Uh, again, not fueled by anything malicious, just ignorance. Um, but I spoke up. I said, this, no, we have to change this. Make it a palace, don't make it a mosque. And they were like, generally, they were confused and saying, why? And when I explained it to them, the reception was positive. They, uh, they said, oh, okay, then let's just change it. And we did, we changed that. And I made a few other changes. And I, uh, I made other requests for changes that didn't get done because I didn't speak up early enough. Mm -hmm. The intention to change it was there for the next project. But for that one, for production reasons. And there was resistance. I'm not going to pretend there wasn't. For, from some people, there was resistance. Like, ah, that's not a big deal or you're being too sensitive. But I had enough clout with the right people that I was able to affect a positive change. And that's what, what, what clicked something in my head where I'm like, hey, maybe I could do something to spread this message outside of my studio because it's working in the studio. It's getting better and better. Before, the antagonists of that game were exclusively Muslim-looking or Arab-looking, right? Mm -hmm. And it changed. It didn't become like that. For the next project, it was kind of like, well, it's maybe the next project, but it was in future iterations of the project. It became a team like Cobra from G.I. Joe, you know, just like a multinational team of people from all over the place who are just a terrorist organization, mm -hmm. not with, with those specific stereotypes only. And it, that was progress. That was an improvement. And um, so I started giving this talk. Initially, I had pitched it to every conference and everyone turned me down. I understand. Nobody knew who I was and no, uh, people were afraid of what I would say. But it was called the... Uh, actually, this is the funny part. It was called The Slims, which was a play on word on the Muslims and The Sims, because I used a lot of Sims imagery to sh in, in, in the slides. Even though that wasn't really a big part of it, I used that just, you know, to, like as a visual cues. And it was called The How-To Guide for Muslim Representation and Video Games. And funny enough, 
uh, or actually obviously enough, the only group after pitching it to so many different conferences, the only group uh, to accept my talk, the first one to do so was a group out of Toronto, Canada called Dames Making Games, another marginalized group who invited me to their conference and allowed me to give that talk for the first time in public. And it was recorded and it was well received. And then I, it, was, it, it just got out of control. Because at that point, like, if you understand ignorance, like people don't know what I'm going to say and they're afraid and it's risky for them to give me a platform. So why would they take that chance? But then once you have that talk recorded and people can listen to it and say, oh, okay, there's nothing problematic here. Then that risk goes away. And all of a sudden, the same conferences that turned me down to give that talk in before were inviting me to do it now. And it was mm, generating buzz. And a lot of people started reaching out, telling me that they learned a lot and that they made changes to their, their game based on it. And that sparked uh, conversations that I didn't think were, were possible in the industry. And I'm not gonna, going to pretend that I was the first Muslim to, to give a, a talk like this. Of course not. Um, like I actually look look up to a whole bunch of others. One of them is my the co-founder of the Habibis, one of the podcasts, is Rami Ismail, who I heard talks about that. Um, We've had I'm, him on the show I, about that. Exactly. Uh, so basically, what like that that was just the beginning for me, not the beginning for the conversation period. Uh, but I was invited to a lot of studios, like competing studios, because this is not a topic that's really a pro- problematic to talk to other studios about, right? Uh, I was invited mm-hmm. to competing studios to give the talk. I was invited to a lot of conferences. Uh, the biggest one was a couple of years later, I was invited to GDC. And it was in 2018 to, to give that talk at, in GDC at one of the biggest forums, like uh, the biggest game developers. That talk right now um, it, it, on, on YouTube alone has something like, I don't know, 30, 50,000 views. And then on GDC Vault has uh, several tens of thousands of views as well, which is pretty much like a big chunk of the gaming industry has seen it and um, based on just my DMs, I think it's ha- it has a big impact on on how people see games now. Now, how people see Muslims in games now. Now we see characters who wear hijab uh, as a, I won't say a common thing, but much more widespread than before. And there's still some problematic depictions. I'm not expecting perfection, but just to show you that 15 years, it's a huge change, huge change from what I experienced when I first came into the industry. For the better, though, yes? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely for the better. That's good to hear, and that's reassuring. Goodness. Um, it's such a heavy topic, and I have to imagine it's it's difficult, tiring, and rewarding all at the same time to talk on. Correct, correct, and correct. <laughs> well, let me try to lighten the mood with NFTs. Oh, we no, had... <laughs> that lightens it so much. <laughs> uh, we had several people write in with questions for you, and uh, prior to this interview, I was recording XEP proper uh, which people have already heard uh, if they listen to the full episode. But Famous Seamus is one of our, our most uh, regular listeners, and he wrote in asking uh, your thoughts on NFTs in games. And I have my own thoughts, but I certainly don't know enough about them to perhaps give the same educated feedback you might. What do you think? So um, I have a lot I can say about this. I'll try to keep it as brief as possible. But the main thing is whenever a new technology comes out, uh, it's received usually negatively because people don't want a change to the status quo. Um, the the thing is with NFTs is that what, I mean the same thing happened for example before when freemium was introduced as as uh, a, you know a monetization scheme. 
uh, and I use that scheme not in the negative connotation, <laughs> but just you know a way to monetize games. Okay, um, good to know because I was thinking it, you meant it negatively. Okay, good to know. Yeah, good yeah. To know. No, no, no. I meant like a, a, a model, a monetization model is what I meant to say. Um, and uh, now we have a lot of games that you have a freemium model and it is uh, predatory, but we also have others who've used it in a positive way. Um, like the people don't complain about, like oh, they like I get to play the game for free, and I'll just have to buy skins, and that's totally fine. It allows me to uh, throw a couple of bucks at a developer, like that kind of thing. That still exists. That's still out there. There are non-predatory freemium games, even though the freemium model itself uh, it has been exploited as well. Uh, same thing happened when you know developers wanted to switch from physical media to digital media. What I don't get to keep a thing. I want the physical thing um, in. That to put on my shelves, and I was actually one of the people who were like, eh, I don't think this digital thing was gonna is gonna stand a long, long time ago. And now my collections are almost exclusively digital. So the thing with NFTs is with those these other technologies, there was a use case. There was someone who pointed at something and said, "This is valuable, and this is the reason why we should go in this direction." With NFTs, it's my opinion that there's nothing that NFTs can do that we can't already do with existing tech. So I don't see a value for it yet. As a game developer, I try to remain open-minded and I try to say, you know what? Maybe someone will figure it out later. Maybe there's going to be a change uh, and I will change my mind when someone shows up and says, hey, we can incorporate NFTs in our games in this way. It works. It adds value and it has a business case so people will implement it. So far, every use case that someone comes up with fails in one way or the other. So nobody has figured it out yet. I'm convinced nobody has, even though some people think they do. A lot of people think, people who don't understand how game development think, uh, how, how game development works, think that they could buy a helmet in one game, move their NFT to another game, and the helmet will exist in that game. They don't understand that that's not how uh, assets work. And they say, oh, yeah, but it can work that way. You could actually create a standard between companies and allow that to work. And even though that's technically true, what incentive does a company have to put in all that extra work, and it's a tremendous amount of work. I'm telling you right now, it's a tremendous amount of work so that um, the user can move something from one game to another and they don't monetize it. I'm sorry, but these big companies who have the means to do this, they, they need the business case to do this. Like they, they, they have the means, that means they have the money, and if they have the money, that means they want to make more. So the companies that can do this, why would they? Why would they close the door at the chance of selling you that same helmet? Why would they allow you to just move it from one to the other? It's a lot of work. It's not a, a, a checkbox that you have to flick. It's a lot of work to change your pipeline and infrastructure to accommodate that and potentially have new animation sets that are added or like whatever. There's so many things that could be, that, that could be implied. So there's no business case for doing it. Functionally, it, like right now, we have a lot of studios who have teams who don't even have the same standards. Like within two projects that, the, that are run from the same studio, you can't move a helmet from one to the other because even within a company, it already it's already too big of a technical ta ask to do that. So that is not functional. Um, and then the, there's other argument where what if it's for currency? What if I could move my gold from one game to the next? Again, what incentive does a company have to allow people to more easily gold farm or to lose control of their own economy, what incentive does a company have to do that? What do they gain? So the answer right now, the only answer that actually has any legs is it's a game of chicken. The 
last, if assuming some companies, some big companies do it some way, in one way or another, incorporate NFTs, assuming some companies start to do it, assuming that fans want this and that they're going to vote with their money and that they're going to buy the games exclusively that give them this, then the last companies that are left behind that are not implementing this, that's the business case, is don't be left behind. So there's a lot of speculation involved in this line of thinking. Because if the big studios are just like, nope, we're not going to do this, that that falls apart as well. If they follow suit and like, them following suit is not enough. They have to follow suit and a few of them have to follow suit. And the user base has to see value in that and, and not purchase the games that don't have it for this to actually happen. And then this whole situation is artificial. There's no actual added value. It's just perceived added value. Because once that happens, people will lose, uh, like game developers will lose control of their economies completely. And I know that sounds to some people not as scary, but because they don't understand what that means. Look back at the use case of Diablo 3's open marketplace when it first came out and look at the disaster of what that looked like and, and see why it's so important. Like when game designers are balancing their economies, it's not an evil thing. It's in service of the player. It's so that things are, are balanced for the player. That's their intention behind it. Yes, there's also monetization involved. But if you poorly monetize something, then you lose the player base anyway. So the whole thing is that is to tread that, that fine line of value for these items, for these digital items, that if you just lose complete control of it, it doesn't mean the control is going to be lost for everyone. It means whoever has the means will be able to control it. Whoever has... Like, erects these gold farms or whatever type of uh, setups that they have in place that allows them to, to, to create these uh, uh, like tokens and, and sell them at a rate and control the market and buy them from people and all of that. Like All of a sudden, you can't just go into a game and play the game. You have to educate yourself on what the value of everything that you have is, and it becomes almost like a, a part-time job. And some people say, well, you know what? That's the advantage. You can, th these tokens, these NFT tokens are limited, right? They're not, they're, there's no infinite amount, so it could be controlled in that way. How does that exactly work? If the tokens are finite, does that mean we're only selling a finite number of those games? Like, it, are, only, are we only going to sell uh, 100 Assassin's Creed, 100,000 Assassin's Creed because that's all the tokens that are going to be generated? Or are we going to still sell millions, but only the first... 100,000 players are going to be able to generate these items? Or are we just going to make it a digital thing where you can sell as many as you want because that's the incentive for companies to make these games. It's to sell as many of them as they can. And therefore, you have to be able to keep up with the NFTs by creating as many as, as, as items exist in the game. Which means that the whole point of NFTs, which is scarcity of digital content, doesn't even work logically. Like, it just... Right now, my frustration with the, this whole thing is that the people who are advocating for it don't understand game economies or game development, and they're making wild claims that are not feasible in most cases. In the cases that they are feasible, there's no incentive for the companies to, to, to action them. Is this the future of NFTs? I don't know. I can't predict the future. All I know is that I'm often in rooms with people, much, game developers that are much, much, much smarter than I am. And I, I listen to them argue about many topics I know very little about. And I have yet to hear from the, the, the greatest minds that game developers, the game development has to offer. 
I've yet to hear uh, like a, a positive thing about the future of NFTs that's not speculative. That's not, well, maybe. That's, oh, definitely this because of this and that. The, the most positive people are hoping someone else will figure it out later. And that's not a good sign for me. So you know how you felt in those rooms with those people smarter than you? That's how I felt the entire time you were explaining this. this, this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, well, dang. All right, let me get my notepad. I'm going to be playing this back with notes just so I can continue to understand this better. So I am grateful <laughs> for you. I'm also grateful that I can rewind because that was a lot. But There's it makes actually sense. way more that I could say about it, nope. to be perfectly honest. But nope, not today. <laughs> Let me process 101 before we get to 102. Okay. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> Man, oh gosh, that... What's cool about it, joking aside, is that as you're as you were like like elaborating on this, is everything you were saying I was tracking, and it does make sense. And I continue to have uh, trepidatious feelings about NFTs in games, uh, and, and I've seen certain companies start it like Stalker Two opened with it and then walked it yeah. back. Ubisoft's, you know, experimenting with it and and failing. <laughs> Failing. Failing is an understatement. Yeah. Um, and I wonder, having just watched, forgive me while I try to tie this back in, I just finished watching Power On, the, the Xbox documentary thing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what they were trying to do in 2013, every company does now, but the yes. world was not ready. Yes. And I wonder if that is the route, similar to microtransactions, similar to always online, similar yeah. to methods it's of possible. DRM. I'm, I'm going to be the first to say that um, it's possible. The only difference is for digital, there was always a use case from the very beginning. People weren't ready for it. And a lot of people didn't like it and reacted negatively to it. I was one of them, but I couldn't, when people said, but uh, this, this is the benefit of going digital, even then I didn't argue against it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. There are people who going digital is a thing for them. They're non-collectors, they're non-whatever. And then my mental model changed. Uh, my, my opinion changed on the topic where I started running out of shelf space and shifted. And that's, that's the thing about the NFTs that the, the only difference between it and other things that were presented beforehand is that that argument hasn't been made yet. And I challenge anyone to make it. What is the one thing that NFTs do that has a business case within games? Because outside of games, uh, that's not my expertise. I don't, NFTs might have very strong uses. I'm not even getting into the environmental impact because every time I do, people say, oh, we'll figure that out in the future. Fine. Let's assume that you're going to figure that out in the future. And it's not going to have a big environmental impact. What use case do you have that has a business case for companies? And the only one that's come up is that no company wants to be left behind, which is true. So if everyone does it because everyone started to do it and now everyone has to do it, that's the only future right now that I see for NFTs. And prove me wrong. <laughs> and if there's something else that comes up, I'll, I'll gladly say, oh, well, I didn't see that coming. And nobody else in those rooms did too. And, you know, like, that's fine. Someone figured it out. And I'll, I'll be the first to admit I'm wrong. Man, I, I hope that you're wrong, but I don't <laughs> think it's going to be the case. You know, I, I don't know. we'll see. We will see. We'll Plenty see. to discover, I suppose, in that realm. Yeah. Uh, Osama, the last thing, yes. the last thing on here. Uh, we had 418,000 questions written in about what? Gotham Knights. That's a and, lot of questions. And, and we're gonna we're gonna PR backflip away from them, yeah. Uh, so that the PR gods don't come out of the ceiling. But I do want to ask <laughs> one single question, and that is, 
how exciting is it to get to work on a, a, a product or a, a brand as Batman, you know, that you were a fan of? How so, exciting is that? <laughs> there are no words for how exciting that is. When I was nine, like, let's say I traveled back in time and told nine year old me that I'd be working on this franchise, I would not have believed me. I would have not believed it. There's no way that I would have been like, yeah, there's a possibility that this would happen. It never even, the possibility never even would have crossed my mind. And even when I got into industry, which was like about 15 years ago, if you had told me that I was going to potentially work on this franchise in the future, I would not have believed you as well. And even when I got the offer from WB to join the studio, I, <laughs> I did not believe it until I stepped foot in the door. And like, I, it's, it's incredible. Like if you like, I am a, a super fan. Uh, you, you, there's no video here, so no one can see. But you saw, you, you had a glimpse of my shelves in the back. I have mm -hmm. a massive comic book collection, massive it's shelves and shelves of comic books. Um, I've been a fan forever of these franchises, of these characters, and to be able to in some way impact them blows my mind. I still wake up sometimes pinching myself. I can't believe it. It's like there are not enough words to tell you how excited I am. I'm, that warms my heart. I mean, I'm sitting in a Batman chair. Arkham Knight was my favorite <laughs> game of last gen. Uh, Gotham Knights, my most, an most anticipated game uh, of 2022. I, I will, will end this interview uh, by thanking you for working in games, for bringing the spotlight you have to marginalized voices, for bringing the education you have to people who are studying and learning about games, and to, to thank you for making games that people are interested in checking out and that want to play. And I will personally say I'm so excited to see what your next project is because I am too a major and, and wonderful fan of Batman. Thank so. you very much, Luke. And honestly, thank you for inviting me on your show. I'm super, super happy to be here. You're a wonderful conversationalist and I can't wait to come back again. If you'll have me, no pressure. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Absolutely, you're coming back, without a doubt. Uh, let people know where they should should look for your work, uh, professional or otherwise. Follow you on socials, all that stuff, please. Uh, to be honest, just follow me on Twitter. Uh, my DMs are usually open. Reach out if you need anything. Uh, of course, as you alluded to, I cannot answer anything studio or project related. I'm sorry. That is not my role in the studio. But anything personal, anything about like the like the gaming industry in general, I'd be well, not anything personal. I'm many things personal and anything <laughs> about the gaming industry in general, I'd be more than happy to answer. I'm not giving you my password. Sorry. <laughs> uh, Osama Doris, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much, Luke. Have a very good day. Thank you.